in the last couple of weeks, I've been repeatedly reminded of the thin line between this world and the next. So it was just two weeks ago that my elderly neighbour, a gentleman in his 90s, um, died. It was just a few days ago that a lady in my prayer support group, a former parishioner of mine, died after years of wrestling with Alzheimer's. It was just a week ago that I had a shocking phone call to tell me that a mother of three children under seven and a member of a a family in my former parish had died somewhat suddenly after a a very short um, bout of pneumonia. And it's just been this, this week in the last few days that a CPS colleague of mine has had a grandson born with kidney problems, which um, are potentially fatal. And we've all been, as an organization, praying very much for him and for that family. So to be looking at what Jesus says about this world and the next is not academic. It's not abstract. Uh, It's very real. And all of us, um, at different times and at different points, Um, ask questions and have to face the realities uh, of life in this world and this line between this world and the next. You will have noticed as um, that passage was read to us and from Mike's introduction um, that that there's some politics in here and um, I apologize for that because probably have had enough of politics um, over the last um, few days. But we do need to note the context in which Jesus' words about this world and the next are offered. And the context is a growing tension between Jesus and these religious groups, the Pharisees um, and the Sadducees. And if you reverse back up to Matthew 21, you'll see that, that the chief priests are indignant when they see the wonderful things that Jesus is doing. Um, That they confront him in the temple uh, and they say, well, by whose authority is it that you're making these claims and doing what you're doing? We're told that it gets to the point where they want to arrest him Uh, And there's a comment in Matthew 22 um, that Jesus is fully aware of their malice. He knows what's going on in their hearts and he spots, as it were, the tensions or the context in which this question, or both these questions are posed. Firstly, a question from the Pharisees, um, should we pay taxes? And of course, they thought Jesus was on a loser here. If he says yes or no, he's going to alienate half Um, those who are listening. Uh, And then secondly, the Sadducees, um, with this amazingly little intricate quiz, really. So if this woman's husband dies and then the next six die, and she remarries, you know, each of them in turn, uh, whose wife is she in the next? And um, as always, it's fascinating to see what kind of an answer Jesus gives And Jesus gives a very straightforward, very blunt, very direct answer. He says this, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And the reason he says to the Sadducees, you don't know the scriptures, is simply this. Because the Sadducees as a group, um, they they held that the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, um, that was God's word. And they weren't too keen on all the other books that came afterwards. Uh, And um, uh, that's why it's important that in responding to them, Jesus said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He said, don't you remember? That's how God showed himself to Moses, i.e. in the Pentateuch. Because the only scriptural references they would have accepted were from the Pentateuch. Jesus went straight there and he said, and if you really knew the scriptures that you claim to know, 
you could work it out that God was not saying to Moses, I'm the God of the dead. No, I'm the God of the living. In which case, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who have physically died, must not have come to the end of their existence. Uh, And with that simple logic, with that um, convincing proof of the reality of the next world, of the life to come, Jesus silenced the Sadducees. With regard to the power of God, well, he was in a nutshell, and we haven't got time to unpack this this morning. He was simply saying, folks, you have no understanding, no experience of the power of God to break into lives, to transform from the here and now into eternity. You're too earthbound in your thinking. You have not understood the reality of the inbreaking kingdom of God. Strong words, forcibly put, and we're told that the Sadducees are silenced. Now, of course, it doesn't take too long to add to those few words of Jesus some of the other things he said, and an awful lot of what's said elsewhere in the New Testament about the life of the world to come. We don't, at the end of the day, have a definitive statement of what life in heaven is going to be like. There's lots of windows into the future. There's lots of comments here and there. We don't have a definitive statement, but we can say certain things, and I've put them just in a little list, five details, as it were, if you want to refer to the handout um, that, I, uh, that has been provided. Um, firstly, there is life after death. There is not annihilation. The Bible makes that very clear. There is a world to come. It's not the kind of world that people who believe in immortality talk about. It's not the kind of world that people who talk about reincarnation talk about. This is a world in which there is resurrection. Those who are dead are raised to new life. There is a bodily component of it. So Paul to the Corinthians talks about Jesus as the first fruits of this new resurrection world. And the word first fruit means um, there'll be others like him. Jesus was raised bodily. Paul argues there will be others who are raised bodily. It's going to be a world in which there is a personal dimension. Do you remember Jesus to the thief on the cross? Today you will be with me in paradise. The future is not some kind of cosmic soup, as some people have suggested. The future, the world to come, is going to be more glorious than the present. Um, And that's why Paul says, we live as it were in a tent here and now, but one day we're going to live in a home, in a house. And finally, Paul elsewhere says, do you know what? No one's going to miss it. Don't be confused about this. He uses the language of a loud command from heaven, of a trumpet call. The advent of the world to come will have a very clear beginning. Now, that's a whistle-stop tour prompted by Jesus' comment of what the New Testament says about the resurrection life. But as I suggested to you at the start, this is not an academic or an abstract or a theological study. This is a very real question. What are we to make of the promise of Jesus, of the assurance of Jesus about the life that is to come? And I want to offer you just four very brief comments this morning. Here's the first. That we can be sure about the resurrection hope. Now, we have an advantage over the Pharisees and the Sadducees who engaged with Jesus here because we have the gospel accounts of Jesus' own resurrection. 
We have the evidence from Paul listed for us in 1 Corinthians 15 of all those different people who met the resurrected Jesus. We've got the witness in our hearts that though he's not with us physically, we know him to be alive. But it's important to understand just how clear the New Testament is about resurrection and the life that is to come and the return of Jesus. So there are 318 references in the New Testament to Jesus' return. 23 of the 27 books mention it. For every prophecy about Jesus' birth in the Bible, there are eight about his return. Jesus' own teaching is very, very clear on this. John 6, it is my Father's will that all those who believe in the Son should have eternal life and that I should raise them up on the last day. I don't know how many of you remember the Looney Tune cartoons. Um, They were... Uh, First, I think, started in the 1930s, and they lasted at least through till the 1980s. Um, I I don't tend to watch much daytime or junior TV these days. For all I know, they could still be there on your screens. We're talking about Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny and Roadrunner and those kind of people. And um, if you remember, at the end of all of those, there's a little kind of phrase that comes up on the screen that says, and a voice says, that's all, folks. Uh, And that voice um, is the voice of Mel Blanc, who for decades, an actor... Um, who's for decades, his voice um, signed off those little um, cartoons. And what you may or may not know is that on his gravestone, it says his name and his dates, and then it says, that's all, folks. Now, it's probably very appropriate that he has those words on his gravestone. The problem is, they're wrong. Because that's not all, folks according to Jesus, according to the New Testament. Jesus challenged the Sadducees, and he says, do you know what? There is going to be resurrection. And the Old Testament speaks of it, Isaiah and Daniel. I'm speaking of it. And after Jesus, of course, Paul and the other New Testament writers went on to speak about it as well. Paul sums it up in 2 Corinthians 4. He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into his presence. And there is so much about this in the New Testament that we are meant to be sure. There is meant to be no doubt. And that's not so that you can be arrogant or puffed up about it. It's not down to you and I. This is down to the plan of God and the purposes of God. But we're meant to be sure about it. Here's the second observation. What Jesus says, both to the Sadducees in the verses we've had read this morning and elsewhere, is meant, I think, to bring us great comfort. Comfort when we are faced with loss around us. Comfort when we're faced with our own um, uh, finitude and humanity. Anita Roddick, um, the founder of Body Shop, once said this in a radio interview, that she was driven by fear driven by fear of death, of the fear of only one life, and the fear of nothing beyond. Dudley Moore said this, I worry about dying. I don't believe in an afterlife or God. I'll just sell my house and pay out in hospital bills. I don't know whether Philip or Mike have ever told you the story of a lady who um, was a member of a church, a different denomination to the Church of England, And in their particular denomination, when somebody died, 
Um, they had the body in a coffin and members of the church and family and friends could come and kind of visit and pay their last respects before the top went on the coffin and um, the, the services and the, the burial, etc., went ahead. And um, this lady, were, there was one elderly lady who was dying and she called her minister in. And the minister came in and she said, I want to talk with you about details for my funeral service. And um, the minister said, fine, that's great. And um, she said, I want these hymns. And he said, they're great hymns. Of course, I'll have those. She said, I want this Bible reading. Um, it's meant so much to me over the years. And he said, that's a great Bible reading. We'll have that. And then she said, oh, and just before you go, there's one more thing. And he said, what's that? And she said, well, you know, when I'm in my coffin, I want you to make sure I've got a fork in my hand. And the minister looked at her somewhat um, puzzled and said, why is that? And she said, well, I've, been, I've loved being a member of this church community all these years. Uh, and one of the things I've loved is when, on different occasions, we've, we've met together and we've eaten and we've fellowshiped and we've had lots of fun. Uh, and she said, you, you, you may or may not know this, minister, but I've always had a bit of a sweet tooth. So when we get to the point in the meal when they take the first course dishes away and someone shouts out, hold on to your fork, I know that the best bit is yet to come. And she says, when people look at me in my coffin and see me with a fork, you need to tell them that's because the best bit is yet to come. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, we don't grieve like those who have no hope. Because the best is yet to come. Here's a third observation that we're meant to be shaped by what Jesus says. We're meant to be shaped by the surety we have about this life to come. I don't know whether it's ever occurred to you, but some days shape life before them. Some days, of course, shape life after them. But some days shape the life before them. So yesterday, one of my daughters was a bridesmaid at, her, uh, at the wedding of one of her flatmates. And um, uh, it seems to me like for the last six months, we've all been living this wedding. And, um, you know, six months ago, they were planning it. Then five months, months ago, they were out for dress fittings. Then a couple of months ago, they were all off together for the hen weekend. And then Friday, it was the nails. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's been a catalog of things that have been influenced ahead of the day by what was to come. And it's interesting, therefore, that once or twice we get this same kind of um, idea from what Paul writes. He writes to the Colossians, set your minds on things above. Start with the end, he says, and then work backwards its implications. Last week I went to see a vicar friend of mine who's in University College Hospital, um, having been suddenly diagnosed um, with a leukemia. And um, she, she's in great heart, and I'm, I'm just so impressed by um, how she can be in that situation. But we read together Philippians 1, verse 6, which is where Paul says, um, God, who has begun a good work in you, will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. There's Paul again, you see, saying, there is this day to come, and, and everything kind of works backwards from that. And God has begun something in our hearts and our lives. And God in his goodness and his graciousness and in his sovereign plan will continue that work so that we are ready 
for that day. And it was a kind of strange conversation, me sitting there on the chair and her, sit, her sitting up in bed. Uh, but what she was saying to me was, she said, you know, I'm, I'm really aware of that, John. And I feel like that for some reason, God has taken me out of normal, regular life for the next few months in order that he can do something in me and make me more like he wants me to be. Now, and as I say to you, I was, I was impressed by the faith of that. I'm not sure that's what I would have said. But that's what Paul says. That today, whatever today is, today is about being shaped for the life that is to come. So I don't know what your week ahead is going to include and involve, but the challenge of what Jesus is saying and the challenge when we couple it with what Paul says elsewhere is that we need to be asking the question, well, could today help me to be better prepared for the life that is to come? Can I be shaped just a little bit more to be like Jesus in whatever today brings in order that I'm ready for when he returns. And then finally, Jesus' surety about resurrection and the life to come should be a motivator for us. What do I mean by that? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, in this great passage where Paul spells out his conviction about the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection life that we are all Um, in Christ going one day to share, he ends up the chapter saying this, that as it were, and I paraphrase him, in the meantime, abound in the work of the Lord. That's how one of the translation puts it. In the meantime, abound in the work of the Lord. It's interesting to see how some people, because of their acute awareness of the world to come have actually been motivated or more focused in this world. And um, if you'll forgive me, I'd love um, just to quote here from um, Shaftesbury, who was one of the um, founders of CPAS. Uh, And you'll be aware of some of the story of Shaftesbury's um, life. Um, What you may or may not be aware of is that he was the the president of CPS um, right through most of his life, having been there in 1836 when it was founded, right through um, to the end. And at the annual general meeting in 1876, um, he said this, I am now looking not to the great end, but to the interval. I know, my friends, how great and glorious that end will be. You see, he's got the surety about the life of the world to come. But while I find so many persons looking to no end and thinking nothing about the interval, I confess that my own sympathies and fears dwell much with what must take place before that great consummation. Now, that's 19th century language. But what he's saying is this, that whilst there are so many who don't know about this world to come, and whilst there are so many whose lives are not being shaped by the words of Jesus and the promise of his return, we have a job to do. If any of you have read Rick Warren's book, The uh, Purpose-Driven Life, um, you'll know there's a little story in there of Rick's dad, who um, quite literally on his deathbed um, kept trying to get out of bed. 
muttering something. And Rick Warren and his family kept saying to him, what, what, what's the matter, what's the matter? And eventually they realized he was repeating a phrase, one more for Jesus. Uh, and Rick's dad's life had been given to what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, about abounding in the work of the Lord. He'd given his life to helping men, women, and children hear the good news of Jesus, respond to that, and be ready for the life of the world to come. One more for Jesus. In 2 Peter 3, we read that that day has not yet come, not because God can't make it come, not because God doesn't know when it's going to come, but because God is intentionally holding back right now in order that as many as possible might be brought to a living faith in the Lord Jesus. The reality of that day should motivate us to give ourselves in his service. Well, folks, I don't know what this week has for each of us. I don't know where you're going to walk. I don't know what work you'll be doing. I don't know what life's journey is going to bring for you this week. But I would want to encourage you to be prompted by Jesus' surety about the life of the world to come and to allow your life to be encouraged by it and shaped by it and motivated by it for his praise and glory. Amen.